All right, happy Easter, everybody. So good to be able to gather and worship and celebrate that Jesus is alive. The tomb is empty. We have the hope of eternal life because of what God has done. Can I get an amen this morning? Can we praise Jesus together? How good it is to be in the house of the Lord. Uh, we have been in a series and we're looking at this question, who is Jesus? And I would suggest to you that this is the single most important question that we'll ever ask. And we've been wrestling with the identity of this God-man, God in the flesh, who's come to save and usher in the kingdom of God. And we've looked at both the Old Testament and the New, wrestling with this truth that the Old Testament is Jesus concealed and the New Testament is Jesus revealed. And it's led us up in the ministry and through the death and now the resurrection of Jesus as we celebrate on Easter. Now, if I had to sum up what Easter is all about, it's really about a miracle. Now, we're going to talk about this miracle of God. But before we dive into that, I have to ask you the question, what do you think about miracles? Now, I'm not asking what you're supposed to think about miracles. I'm not asking what the Sunday school answer is about what we think about miracles. I'm talking about deep in your heart and your mind and your life, what do we think about miracles? Now, for some of us, we might be willingly and ready to embrace, but if we're honest, a lot of us, myself included, when somebody comes to me and says, hey, I experienced a miracle, my first response is not, great, hallelujah. My first response is, really? Like, did you really experience a miracle? And, and we can be kind of skeptical when it comes to miracles. But here's the thing. In my life, in my ministry, in 20 years of ministry, I've seen a lot of miracles. I've seen a lot of things that shouldn't have been, that couldn't have been, but somehow they were. Where God moved, where there wasn't a way to move, and he just made it happen. But more importantly, in my personal life, I've experienced a lot of miracles. Whether it was with a family member who one day cancer is there and the next day cancer is gone. Or those moments in my life where I've been up against the wall financially and had no clue how I was going to make it through the day to come and to be able to deal with the things that were thrown at me. And out of nowhere, in a very specific way, God provided miraculously for what we needed. I could go on and on about the miracles that I've experienced and it might just be that if I were to sit down with you over coffee and I kind of shared with you some of those, you, you might too be kind of like, well, really? And here's what happens. When we really find ourselves where we're able to believe in a miracle, one of two things have happened, maybe both. Uh, either first, we saw with our own eyes or we experienced in our own lives something that was impossible. We saw it, we, we went through it. Firsthand, or it might be that we believe because the person sharing it is a reliable witness to what happened. We believe in them and that they're telling the truth. Now, here's the thing about the miracle of Easter is that there was evidence then and there's evidence now. And there were reliable witnesses then and there are reliable witnesses now that we can embrace this miracle called Easter. And we're going to talk about a few of those, but here's what I really want to get to. Is that what does it look like for us, not just to believe, but to embrace and surrender to this miracle that Jesus 
really is alive. So let's talk about what is it that happened on Easter Sunday. It actually really began a week before that. And we talked about this last Sunday as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. He comes in from the east. We call it Palm Sunday. People laid down palms and they laid down their coats and they shouted Hosanna. And they were celebrating because they thought Jesus was going to come into the temple area and he was going to be crowned as king. And they were going to throw out the Romans and make Israel the country they all wanted it to be. Well, Jesus goes into the city. He's not crowned as king. As a matter of fact, he looks around, he turns and leaves. And he goes to cross the valley to the Mount of Olives and to Bethany. He rests. He comes back the next day. Again, not crowned as king. Instead, he comes into the temple area. He sees people taking advantage of those coming to celebrate the Passover. He turns over tables. He runs the money changers out. And again, he turns around and leaves. He comes back on Tuesday. He comes into the temple courts. He takes a, a Q&A. He answers some questions. Then he goes out on the temple court, or temple steps, and he does what a preacher would do, and he delivered a sermon. This was his final sermon that he would ever deliver. And he calls out specifically to religious people like you and me, and he begs them to embrace the grace and mercy of God that we're not saved by behavior or bullet points, but we're saved by grace and what only God can do. He leaves the city again. He comes back. Uh, he goes, leaves and stays where he is on Wednesday where he spends some time with friends and family. And a lady named Mary comes in and she anoints him. Seemingly the only one out of the whole group that understood what Jesus was about to do. On Thursday, he has a Passover meal and redefines what that meal was for his disciples. That they would know that he would give his blood. He would give his body as the new covenant for God's forgiveness and, and new life. And then he goes with his disciples to the Mount of Olives, to the garden of Gethsemane, and he begins to pray because he knows what's coming before him. And sure enough, the, the authorities come and they arrest Jesus. They take him first to the high priest where he's questioned, then to Pilate and to King Herod where he's questioned again. Eventually, Pilate will arrest him and sentence Jesus to death, but not just any death. It was the most heinous of deaths that you could experience. A criminal's death of not just any kind, but on the cross. It was a public spectacle. It was painful. It was torture. It was horrible. And Jesus died there on the cross. And all the people who had followed him saw their whole world fall apart. And we would have looked at the scene and we would have seemingly thought, well, this is chaos. This is disorder that everything is out of control, but it could have been nothing further from the truth because every step of the way, Jesus was in complete control in submission to the Father's plan for salvation. As a matter of fact, Jesus is hanging on the cross and he gets to the three o'clock hour and it's, we've seen darkness and an earthquake and, and all these things happen. And Jesus takes his final breath. But right before that, he utters a three-word sentence that may have been the most powerful sentence that Jesus ever said as he looks at the people and he says, it is finished. Now, what Jesus was saying 
was that finally this is why I have come, that everything was leading to this moment, that this is why I was born, to give my life as a ransom, to do what humanity could not do. So he took on a human body, he took on flesh, and he gave his life to ransom us from a sin, a problem that we couldn't get ourselves out of. And for him, he was accomplishing his purpose. It is finished. But here's the hard part. That's not at all what the followers of Jesus heard Jesus say. When he said it is finished, for them what they heard is, it's over. It's done. We put everything in this. He was... All of our hopes, our dreams, our expectations of a new life, of being free, of being redeemed. We put everything in this man and he is dead and it is over. It is finished. And they experienced a disappointment that for many of us is, is hard to fathom. And you look at the followers of Jesus and the women grieve, the men leave. And it all falls apart. There's one little shining moment where a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who's a wealthy man, apparently a follower of Jesus, takes a big risk and comes to Pilate and asks for the body of Jesus because the body was supposed to remain there as a spectacle, as a sign of anybody who would threaten Rome. The Pilate instead gives the body of Jesus to Joseph of Arimathea and he buries him in the tomb that he had carved out for his family. And there was a finality to it. In a lot of ways, it was finished. But we know the other side of the story, right? That God was just getting started and God had a big surprise in store for those followers of Jesus. Now, what was that surprise? Well, we find it in Matthew 28. We'll start in verse one. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. The surprise of all surprises. All right, it was finished. It was over. It was done. Everything had fallen apart. He was dead. The tomb was holding his body. And yet here they find that the tomb is empty, that Jesus is alive, that he is just getting started. It's not done. This is the beginning. Go and tell the disciples for there's work to be done. This means that Jesus really did die. I love that message of the angel. I know who you're looking for. It was, you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. You didn't make a mistake. You didn't missee it. This really happened. He was dead. 
and he took our sin into his body. He went to the place of the dead and the Father has brought him back to life. And we're just getting started. And the question that, that I really want to wrestle with is not just that we would agree with this, but how do we embrace it? In the midst of all the struggles and heartache and difficulty and questions of life, how do we embrace this truth, the surprise of God that Jesus really is alive? Well, right here embedded in the story, I think there's some things that, that might just help us embrace the power and the truth of this story. Here's the first. Don't let disappointment prevent us from seeing Jesus. I cannot overstate the disappointment of those early followers of Jesus. They were absolutely crushed in every way. And they didn't know what to do or what was coming next. They had no clue. And they were struggling with the disappointment that they could have never possibly imagined that they'd be experiencing. And every single one of us will experience disappointment in all kinds of different ways throughout our life. Some of us this morning are, are walking through some heavy disappointment in life. And the question is, what in the world am I going to do with that? Because I would lift up this truth. What we do with disappointment will either hold us captive to it or will set us free. I mean, look at what happened to those early followers. If Jesus had not intervened in the life of those early followers, might they have been held absolute captive for the rest of their lives to the disappointment that they experienced? And yet somehow they were able to bring it to Jesus who set them free. So what do we do with disappointment? Well, there's a couple of different things that we do. Sometimes what we do is we do nothing. And if we do nothing, I promise you, we will experience bitterness. Let me say it this way. Disappointment, unattended, over time, becomes bitterness. Every single time. Sometimes we are afraid of it, and so we just bury it, and we act like it's not there. We, we try to ignore and, and believe that that disappointment is not something that happened and we just want to move on with our life. Or maybe for some of us, we try to be religious, we try to be pious, and we tell ourselves, well, I'm not supposed to feel disappointment about that. And so I need to let that go and move on as if it didn't really happen. And whenever we ignore it and bury it and try to move on as if it wasn't there, every single time we are planting a seed of negativity, of hurt, of pain, and that seed is going to grow and it's going to bear fruit and the fruit is going to be bitterness. And that bitterness is going to impact every decision. It's going to become the lens for our lives. It's going to impact every relationship and ultimately give direction to who we become. A less than attitude, a never going to work attitude, a hurting, painful, can't trust anybody kind of life. And so we've got to be careful that we don't ignore it. We've got to do something with it. Sometimes it's not that we do nothing. Sometimes what we do is just like the men, we run from it. And when we run from the disappointment in our lives, I promise you we will experience regression. And here's what I mean. The men that had followed Jesus 
when they are faced with their disappointment, what do they do? They ran back to what they knew. I don't know what to do with this. This is hurtful. This is painful. This is scary. This might cost me something. I'm going back to fishing. Because that wasn't really what I wanted, but at least I know what it is, and I'm comfortable with it. And many of us run to temporary things for forever problems because we want to just dull or deal with the pain right now with that temporary feel good. And we will always experience that drawing back rather than moving forward. Because here was the big danger for those men who ran away. If Jesus had not intervened, they could have lost everything that they had gained up to that point. And when you and I run away from disappointment instead of running to Jesus, we can also lose everything. The growth, the wisdom, the strength, the perseverance, the grace. We can lose it all when we're not willing to face the heartache and the hardship in front of us and say, I'm bringing it to Jesus. So what do we do with the disappointment? Well, what if we did like the women? What if we keep moving forward in faith? I believe that when we do this with the disappointment of our life, that just like the women, we will experience an opportunity. When those women, Mary and the other Mary, wow, they had some disappointment. I mean, this was hard that Jesus was the one that they put all their hope in. And now he's dead. And they didn't know what to do. They didn't know where to turn. They didn't know what was going to happen to them. And so what did they do? I I wish I could have been there in that moment and this conversation that they had where they finally came to the conclusion, you know, we just have to do the next right thing. And what's the next right thing? Jesus, who we love, has been killed. He is dead. Let's go anoint the body. And here's the thing as they go. They were not ignoring the big problems that were facing them. And let me tell you, there were some big problems facing them. We know the long-term things, but what about just in that moment? For starters, there's this great big rock in the way. How in the world are they going to get into the tomb to anoint Jesus with a big stone blocking the way? Well, they didn't have an answer for that. But they just knew this is the next right thing, and they went in faith. Well, what about the guards? Are they just going to get out of the way? Maybe the guards are going to roll the stone away. Doubtful. These are the men who have been hired to guard the tomb from these very people from touching the body. Are we going to be arrested? Are we going to be killed? They didn't have an answer for that. But they just did the next right thing. And they went in faith. And when they went in faith, despite the disappointment that they were feeling in that moment, they experienced an opportunity for God to do what only God could do. They were in the position to see God use the setback and make it the set up for what he wanted to do in their life. And it's only when we're able to bring our disappointment to the feet of Jesus that he will do the very same thing and we'll be in the position for God to do what only God can do. What would that look like for us to not give up? But I'm just continuing to look for Jesus in the midst of it. And as a follower of Jesus, I know this, is that the one thing I can never let go of is hope. As followers of Jesus, we always have a relentless grip on hope. We keep looking for Jesus.
And Jesus promises us when we look for him, we will find him. That brings us to the second truth. Don't let doubt prevent us from searching for truth. Everybody in this story could have just given up. What did they do? They kept searching. They kept looking. And when they looked, they found that Jesus came and led them into truth. Everybody in this story is dealing with doubt. And here's what's so fascinating is that it was not the lack of evidence that made them doubt. Here's how I know that. Is that even when they came face to face with the risen Jesus, some of them still had doubt. Many of us think if things will just turn, if God will just show me, if he'll just come and do something, then I'll stop doubting. No. We need more than the evidence to overcome doubt. Take a look at this. Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they, what? Say it loud. When they saw him, here's the evidence, he's right in their face. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some did what? Doubted. Even face to face with the risen Jesus, some of them were still battling doubt. And what we need to understand is that doubt in and of itself is not the final barrier between us and faith, the final barrier between us and Jesus. When we bring it to Jesus, it can actually bring growth. God can use it to grow up faith in us if we'll bring it to him. And there's all kinds of different ways that we doubt. I mean, think about it, all the ways that we have doubt in life. For some of us, we doubt that God exists. Is there really a God? Like, where did all this stuff come from? I guess it just poof, out of nowhere. How could there be a, a God out there? But when we look around, we got to start to ask the question, what requires more faith, to believe that there's a God or to believe that there isn't? Maybe it's not this. Maybe what we doubt is we doubt that God is able. I believe there's a God and all this stuff had to come from somewhere. But when I look at my life, it is still messed up. It is still broken. My life is still jacked up and God hasn't done anything about it. And so he must not be able to deal with the stuff that I have. And many of us are really wrestling with that. And Jesus would invite us to say, listen, I got a plan that's greater than what you can imagine. Just hold on. Maybe it's not that. Maybe what we really doubt is we doubt that God cares. That if God is God, I know he's able. The problem is he's just busy, right? He's off running the universe. He's spinning some planets around and moving some stars. And he's got helping other people. And my little life is not big enough. And he's just not concerned about me. And Jesus is just waiting for us to stop striving and stop trying and bring that doubt to him and let him show us just how much he cares. Maybe it's not that. Maybe what we doubt is that we doubt that I am able. Yes, I know there's a God. Yes, I know he is by definition able. Yes, I know that he cares. But the problem is God is asking me to do some things that I just can't do. He wants me to, to step out there and lead or teach or serve or do that. I can't. I don't have what it takes. And Jesus is saying, will you just bring that to me? Because really, it wasn't about you in the first place. Let me do something in your life. 
Let me surprise you with some new opportunity, new life in you. Maybe it's none of that. Maybe really what it boils down to for us is that I doubt that I am worthy. Could God really love me? God loves them. I understand that. God loves the world. But could God love me after what I did? Could God love me knowing the thoughts that I have? Could God love me knowing what I've walked through? What's happened in my life? And when we bring that doubt to Jesus, he would say to us, there is nothing that could ever separate you from my love for you. But these doubts are going to continue to creep up. The question is, what do we do with it? Are we willing to bring it to Jesus? He's not scared of it. He's not offended. He's not intimidated. He wants you to bring it to him. And he wants to wrestle through it with you. And here's one thing I've learned about doubt is that the remedy for doubt is not certainty. That's what we tell ourselves, right? If I can just be certain of this, if I can wrap my head around it, I won't doubt anymore. Well, no, there's always going to be questions. We have an infinite God and we'll never come to the end of the questions that we have for him. Certainty is not the remedy for doubt. So what is? The remedy for doubt is perseverance. Keep searching. Keep looking for truth. And know that God will be found in it. He's inviting you to come to him and he wants to show you all that your heart is longing for. And so we come to this final point is that God is providing evidence for us to believe. Now, Jonathan, you just said that evidence is not enough to deal with my doubt, to deal with my difficulty. It's not. Let me talk about this word believe for a second. When we see this word believe, what we tend to think is agreement. I I agree that Jesus is who he said he was and he did what he said he did. And I'm good with that. As a matter of fact, I said a little prayer when I was 12 years old and I know I'm going to heaven and now I'm just, it's time for me to live my life. I'm going to do me. Well, that's not at all what we're talking about. This word is prevalent in the gospel of John and John uses the word pistis, which doesn't mean agreement. It means surrender. It means to trust. God is providing evidence not to answer all the questions, but to draw you in to trust him. And he gave evidence for those early followers of Jesus. When you think about it, to start, there's an empty tomb here. There was a body. Now there's not. Look, I can see where he was laying. There's the cloths. And what about that body? You know, this is one of the things that's really cemented my faith over the years. You see, the the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders who had all the reach and all the authority and all the reason to shut this down, all they had to do was take that dead body and parade it all over the Roman Empire and tell everybody, you wanted a new king, you wanted a Lord, here is your king, we killed him, it is finished, it is over, here, what are you going to do now? And guess what? They didn't do it. Why? Because they couldn't. Because Jesus was over having breakfast with the disciples. Amen. What about the angel and his message? 
What about those women? It is amazing that God allowed the first two witnesses to be women, not because they're less than, but because he knew that in the first century, a woman's testimony was useless in the court of law. So he's not saying like, I got to make Rome agree with me. No, he's, I got a movement that nobody can get in the way of and you just better watch what's about to happen. What about those disciples and those early followers of Jesus? About those hundreds that saw Jesus risen who in the years to come lost business, lost friends, lost family, lost their lives because of what they had seen and they couldn't back down from it. There's a lot of evidence. There's evidence around us today. This is not to make light of questions, but as you wrestle with this, I believe you will find truth that scripture is reliable that the witnesses are reliable, that the Holy Spirit is active and working, that our universe is displaying the works of an intelligent, loving God, that history shows us that Jesus really is who he said he is and did what he said he was going to do. We could go on and on and on about the evidence. But really, at the end of the day, it's not the question of is there evidence it's the question of what am I going to do with it? When we think about this story, there are two sets of witnesses. The first we've talked about, the women. And what do they do? They see, so they search it out. They hear and they listen. And then they choose to trust and they go. But there was a whole other set of witnesses here. Those Roman soldiers who saw the very same thing. And yet, because of their fear, they go in, into an agreement where they live the rest of their lives in a lie. Same events, two different paths, faith and fear. And it breaks my heart that so many of us are gonna live the rest of our lives in a lie because we're overwhelmed by fear. God couldn't love me, that's a lie. God's not able, that's a lie. God's not working, that's a lie. And maybe the greatest lie of all, and this is really perhaps what will keep me up at night, as many of us will believe because I said a prayer and because I intellectually agree that Jesus did all the things that he said he was gonna do, that I'm golden and I'm good and, and I'm, I'm straight, I'm gonna go to heaven one day and I can just live my life right now. But the call is not to agree with a set of doctrinal points. The call is to have faith, to trust and to surrender. Are we willing to step into that truth? See, Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, and that defines and it is everything. And we are faced with a choice. As we hear this gospel news, we are confronted that we have to make a choice. That we either surrender or we reject him. If he is God, he requires everything. We can't dabble with this. He's either Lord of lords and King of kings of your life, or he isn't. And to not make a choice in and of itself is a choice. 
And I'm begging you to choose Jesus. Not just to know about him and, and agree. Even the demons understand who Jesus is and they run away from him. It's an act of surrender. And here's what I'm going to invite us into. Maybe you're here, maybe you're watching online. And for you, you've agreed with this your whole life. And yet you've never really surrendered in faith. You never spent daily asking for faith. God, help me to trust you. Help me to surrender to you in my decisions, my relationships, my school, my work, my direction of my life. All of it, let me surrender it to you. And when I feel you speaking to me, the answer is yes. I'm not going to try to wait and figure out all the steps. The answer is yes. I'm surrendered. That is what it is. It's not like, wait until I get this figured out. No, surrender is yes, Lord. If that's where you are, I'm begging you to say yes to him. These altar rails are open. You can come and pray if you want and wave one of the pastors over. But I'm going to ask something a little different too. Inside of our bulletins, there's a little tear out prayer section and if you've just been in a place of agreement, but not faith, you haven't trusted him, I'm gonna ask that you just write your name and write, I'm ready to come to Jesus. That we can pray with you and for you. We can join with you in this journey. Maybe for some of us, we've made that commitment, but stuff has gotten in the way. Life, work, disappointment, heartache, loss, grief. If that's who you are and you are willing to let the Spirit draw you back in, take that same slip of paper, write your name and say, I'm ready to come back to Jesus. Then we can pray with you and for you. If you're in those, one of those places, you're gonna write that, fold it up, and you can put it in one of the boxes around the room. And then all of us, because of this good news, we come and we do just what the women do. We worship, we praise Him, and we tell others about our King, who is alive. If you'll stand, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to close out with a song that is a declaration of all the evidence from the beginning of creation to God's revelation of His Word to the life of Jesus, His death, His resurrection, the birth of the church. And because of all of that, we praise Him What's your decision going to be today? It's not whether or not there's evidence. It's what are we going to do with the evidence? Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you and celebrate you. God, thank you for your love that you gave us life. Thank you for salvation that you gave Jesus. Thank you for the empty tomb, the resurrection, that we know that we're going to go to heaven when we trust you. But not only that, but Jesus is going to come again. And there's going to be a resurrection. And we're going to have new bodies in the new heaven and new earth. And we're going to worship with angels and celebrate eternity with you. God, thank you for the birth of your church, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for constantly dealing and wrestling with our questions and our doubts and our fears and always inviting us, never rejecting us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. I pray that the Holy Spirit would stir in our hearts right now. Draw us to you to take that next step. What is the next right thing to do in our relationship with you and have courage to take that step? Come, Lord Jesus, do what only you can do. 
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.